good to be here. We're continuing our series titled Come and See. And we started this series a couple of weeks ago with this idea that, uh, that everybody's seeking something. And in the Gospel of John, the first words that Jesus says to the first people that kind of come after him in that Gospel are, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What do you want? What are you looking for? What are you after? And so we've been kind of peeling that uh, question back and, and seeing Jesus' response several times now have been, come and see, come and see. Last week we looked at Nicodemus and the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and how uh, He comes to Jesus at night. He comes and he comes to see. And he comes to see everything differently. He comes to see things in a new light. And then we see following that evidence of transformation in Nicodemus' life. This week we're going to look at uh, somebody else saying this phrase. We're going to look at the story of the woman at the well that's found in John chapter 4. And how she comes to see Jesus. She wasn't seeking him at the time. He initiates the conversation with her. But once she comes to see Jesus and understand who he is, she has to go and tell everyone else. And her words to her people that she goes back to are, come and see. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. So I don't want to give you a spoiler there, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we'll see, as we do, that many other people come to see Jesus as a result of her willingness to go and to invite. And so on that note, a little bit, we've, uh, we've got the ministry tables out in the lobby, and they are out there for two reasons, all right? Many of you are regular attenders here, and you know that we have great children's ministry, and we have great youth ministry, and we have adult ministries, and we have worship ministries. So they're there for two purposes. The first purpose is to equip you to invite to equip you to take a card and invite somebody to come and see. Maybe there's a new family in your neighborhood and you could take a youth card and a kids ministry card and take it over with a plate of cookies and say, come and see what's going on at Linwood Wesleyan Church. Maybe there's a new employee at your, uh, at your workplace and you could take one or two of the adult cards uh, that we have at our adult ministries table and you could take those and you could say, come and see what's happening at my church. And we want to equip you to invite. We're doing a series titled Come and See. We want to encourage you and challenge you and equip you to go and invite. So there's information about the different ministries that take place here and there are things that we can put into your hands to go and and be that arm of Linwood that reaches into your world, into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into your family, and so on. Second purpose that we have is to invite you to serve. So we want to equip you to invite, and we want to invite you to serve. We believe that God is drawing people to Linwood Wesleyan Church. I've met several new families this morning, and I asked one, well, how did you end up here? And they said, we just came. <laughs> Nobody invited them uh, that, they, that they said. They just been meaning to come, and they came, and they're here today, and we rejoice in that. And people are, God is going to be drawing people, and we are going to be inviting you to serve. And so maybe you're already serving in one or two places. Maybe you're not serving anywhere. Maybe you've been kind of waiting and seeing, and now would be an opportune time for you to find an area where you would be interested in serving. There are a lot of teams that you can become a part of, and there's information there at each of the tables as well. So that's going on. I also want to, uh, you know just a little time out. I went fishing with, uh, with my two youngest sons, which means they went fishing and I fixed lines and I did all the different things. And so I had Owen and Carson on this river and I kept saying, you know, don't cross your lines, don't cross your lines. And every now and then, you know, one would cast and, you know, they're not 
doesn't always go where they want it to go. So I had a lot of grace and a lot of patience, and I felt almost like it was supernatural, the amount of patience that I had that afternoon. But they got their lines crossed a couple of times. And I tell you that little story, because we got our lines crossed just a little bit this morning as well. When Zach was talking about the membership, uh, he, he referred to it as a membership class. Well, it's actually a membership lunch. We're, we're having new members next week, and, and we're going to celebrate that together, and we want to have a lunch after the service down in the youth room to celebrate our new members. And so we do need you to take out your connection card and there are some blank boxes on the back. If you can come to the lunch, we want you to put a box in there and write membership lunch or MBR lunch if you don't want to write out membership. I don't blame you. Um, And then the number of people that will be there. And that way we'll know how many are coming. We're going to do soup, salad, and breadsticks. You can just drop a five or a ten in the plate if you're able to um, and that will help cover the cost of the lunch. Uh, But we will do that next week and so we want you to know about that it's been in the bulletin for a while we've kind of been trying to announce less and draw your attention to the bulletin more Uh, so please be making sure that you're reading your bulletins and uh, you should have seen that I think we originally had it in there as a potluck but we started to look at the logistics of the potluck and uh, decided that might be better to go with a lunch. So that is that. That is where we are, and uh, we are excited. So I'm going to be reading uh, the majority of John chapter 4, and I've gotten some good feedback from actually reading big chunks of Scripture in church rather than just focusing in on one or two verses. Um, So we're going to read John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. If you've got a pew Bible, it's on page 1650. You can turn there and follow along. We don't put those words on the screen necessarily because we really want you to be reading this in a Bible that, that you either grab from the seat in front of you, or pick up and bring with you uh, to church. Or maybe you use a digital Bible or something like that. So I will read that to you, and then we'll look at a couple of of broad observations on this passage and look into a couple of verses in particular that we do want to focus on and believe that God has something to say to us through those words today. So the overall context here, we've kind of been tracking through the Gospel of John, and uh, John chapter 4 the overall context is that Jesus is, is returning to Galilee. And so he's been in Jerusalem, which is south of Galilee. He's making his way north, and he has to go through the country of Samaria. And if you don't know it, uh, there's a big rift between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And those that live in Judea and are the right and true believers, and you'll pick up on some of this in the story, and those that live in Samaria. And it was to the point that it wouldn't have surprised anybody in Jesus' day if he had gone all the way around it. If he'd crossed over the Jordan, gone up north, and then crossed back over to get to Galilee. There was that big of a rift between the two cultures. Uh, So it's interesting that Jesus chooses to go through and that he stops and has this interaction that we're going to read about here. So picking up at John chapter 4, here's what John records. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. 
Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone else have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one who sows and another reaps, Is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. May God's Spirit now illuminate his word to us and help us to apply it to our lives. That's what we're after here. And so there's a couple of of general or broad things that I think emerge from this chapter. If we seek to compare it to the last chapter, there's some interesting comparisons and contrasts between Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, Nicodemus, a well-born, moral man, coming to Jesus under cover of darkness, and Jesus having this conversation with what we can presume to be an immoral woman in broad daylight. There's 
interesting contrast. And we know it's broad daylight because we're told that it's the sixth hour. In the Jewish uh, uh, setting of time, that would tell us it's about noon. And this is unique detail that that is insightful to us if we understand some of the customs. You see, women would go out to draw water from a well early before it got hot. That is, women that were comfortable being seen in public. The immoral women, or the women who maybe had been forced through life circumstances to pursue an immoral lifestyle, would come during the heat of the day and draw their water at noon when no one else would be around and no one else would see them. We, we have a devout, sort of papered Jew in Nicodemus, and we have an immoral Samaritan half-breed in this woman at the well. And yet Jesus interacts with both of them, and yet both of them have a paradigm-shifting experience as they encounter the real Jesus, and, and it changes them. It brings about transformation in their life. We see the conversation with Nicodemus centering around this idea of new birth, that, that if anyone will see the kingdom of God, they must be born again, born of the water and the Spirit. And here, there's the conversation centered around living water, that Jesus is the source of living water that will well up within us as the Spirit comes into our lives and directs our lives into the future. It's also interesting to note that, that we have a progression that Jesus is following now. In just the previous chapter, he was in Jerusalem. We're told he moves through Judea to Samaria, and he's on his way to Galilee. Galilee, throughout the Old Testament, is referred to Galilee of the nations, or, or Galilee that represents the whole world. It's the, it's the farther edge. And if you're familiar with the way that, that the, the book of Acts begins, Jesus says in Acts 1.8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. And we see this progression take place right here in these few pages between chapter 3 and chapter 4. We see him coming and seeing, going and being. Come and see, go and be. Come and see. Come and see the Savior. Come and get to know the Savior. Then go and be where he has placed you, whether that's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or the other ends of the earth. And in fact, in John 20, verses 21 and 22, Jesus is going to say to his disciples when he appears to them after he has resurrected from the grave, he says to them, as the Father is sending me, so I am sending you. He was sent, and he sends. He was sent to you on the day of your salvation, and he sends you to go and to be his witnesses. Witnesses tell of what they have seen and heard. That's what a witness does. And we are to tell of what we have seen and heard, much like the responsive reading that we read, which was such a perfect bridge between those two songs. Well done. I mean, it, it, it was just great. We are here for you, God. That's how we opened our worship. Then we looked at this passage of Scripture that says, I will tell. I will tell. I have come for him, and now I am going to go and take him to the world. And then we sing about how great our Lord truly is. Jesus models this for us, this sending. And he does it in perhaps the most scandalous way. We don't, we don't pick this up today the way that early readers of this story would have. For Jesus to be talking to a Samaritan was very unusual. To be talking to a Samaritan woman, that's strike two. And to be talking to a Samaritan woman of ill repute at that time in that culture was absolutely unbelievable. 
Even his disciples have been following him around for a while and know he does some pretty weird things. This really got their attention. They could not believe that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. And I think that that highlights our bottom line today. That there is no one that Jesus didn't come to save. There's no one Jesus did not come to save. And I know that the grammar is dubious. Believe me, I'm a grammarian. I tell people, I am the grammarian about whom your mother warned Right? Because you don't want to end that sentence in the preposition. But the double negative is intentional. There is no one that Jesus didn't come to save. Which means that Jesus came to save everyone. And he will interact with and he will engage with everyone. And so should we if we are his followers. So that's our big idea. That's our our bottom line today. I want to look at how that plays out in a couple of of passages of Scripture. The first is uh, verses 28 through 30. Verses 28 through 30 of our story here. I'll read those to you again. They're going to be on the screens as well. And I want to to consider a couple of things in this passage. Because this is just after the disciples have come back and they see him talking with this Samaritan woman and they can't believe it. And they, they don't ask him outright, but... We're told in verse 28, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now there's probably a little bit of hyperbole involved. I mean, their conversation wasn't long enough for Jesus to literally tell her everything she ever did. But he knew enough. And he had seen with supernatural insight into her heart. And he knew enough. And he continued the conversation with her. And he made an offer to her despite her condition, which had caused her to be an outcast in her society. Jesus maintained the relationship, maintained the offer of eternal life, of salvation to her. And so he knew enough to know that he should have nothing to do with her in her own eyes. And yet he continued. And he made an offer to her and revealed himself to her as the Christ. And it's that that compels her to go and to tell people, he he knows me. He knows me. He knows everything I've ever done. Come and see him. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? And I think this illustrates a point that when you come to see Jesus, to truly see Jesus, you want others to see him too. When you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you want other people to know too. When you come to see, as David did in Psalm 32, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose God is the Lord. When we come to see our sinful state wiped clean by Jesus Christ, we want other people to see it too. We want other people to experience that too. You see, to know Jesus is to love Jesus. Period. And you might say, well, yeah, but Pastor Mark, what about all those people that don't love Jesus? They don't know him. They don't know him. When you truly know Jesus, you love him. And all the people that don't love God or can't imagine loving the God of the Old Testament, they've never seen him through the lens of Jesus. Jesus came to remove all of the, all of the things that would distort our view of God. He came to be the perfect representation of God in Hebrews 1.3. We're told that he was the perfect representation of God. And that when we have seen God, we have seen him through Christ. And when we have seen Christ, we have seen the Father who sent him. To, to know Jesus is to love Jesus. So if you don't love Jesus very much, you probably don't know him very well. And if you don't love God very much, you don't know him very well. He is 
love. God is love. And he reveals his love to us perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. So furthermore, the more you know Jesus, the more you will love Jesus, and the more you will share Jesus. So what's the goal? Get to know him better. Get to know him better. Foster and cultivate your love for him intentionally, and you will share him with others, and you will become a part of the redemptive mission of God in this world, which began in sending Christ to pay the penalty for our sins, that they could be forgiven, that they could be washed clean, that we could then join him in bringing the world to salvation, bringing the world to him. And I find it interesting to notice that there is no evidence in this story that the disciples, when they went into town to buy lunch, there's no evidence that they evangelized at all. There's no evidence that they shared the good news. There's no evidence that they said, hey, did you know that Jesus, the prophet you might have heard about from Jerusalem, he's out at the well. He's out at Jacob's well. You guys want to come back with us? We're going to go have lunch. Do you want to come have lunch with us? There's no evidence whatsoever that the disciples told anybody that Jesus was at the well. Because when, he comes, when they come back, the only people there are Jesus and the Samaritan woman. There's nobody else there. There's nobody else with them. Ironically, the Samaritan woman of ill repute, when the disciples come back alone, she goes into town and tells everybody, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come and see this man. Could he be the Christ? And I have to imagine, because I've been there, I've been there on plane rides. I've been there when I'm getting my hair cut. I've been there when, you know, there's that little nudge. You ought to tell people. You ought to ask the question. You ought to open the conversation. And we don't. And we shy back. And the reasons might be different. Sometimes we're in a hurry. Sometimes, you know, we're, there's danger. Maybe it was dangerous to identify themselves as Jews. Maybe they were, here's our mission, guys, on their way into town. We're going to get lunch. We're going to get out. And we're going to head back. We're not going to interact with anybody. We don't want to be the minority here. We want to get back to where we're the majority. You don't know. We don't know why. And I can think of the times in my life when I haven't followed that little prompting to open the conversation or to share what I have seen and heard with somebody. The reasons are always different. But I can tell you, every time I take the risk, like the woman does, the Samaritan woman does, every time I take the risk, I see fruit from it. I see fruit from it in my own life, or I see fruit from it in an open door into somebody else's life. So the woman goes into town. She comes back immediately with a crowd. And so my question would be at this point, when we think about these three verses, which are you? Which are you? Who do you identify more closely with? Is it the disciples? Is it those that didn't share even though they had a golden opportunity? Or is it the woman who tells everybody, who goes in and just gets out the bullhorn and says, hey, y'all, come and see. This could be the Messiah. Like, this is a big deal. And let me tell you, eternal salvation is a big deal to anybody that you would share it with. And you're either going to have an opportunity to bring somebody into that relationship with Jesus, or you're going to find a brother you didn't know or a sister you didn't know and find, oh, I am a believer. I go to this church. And you can have a conversation about that, and you can experience fellowship around that. Whatever it is, we we have to be people that go and be. We have to be people who go and who invite and who invest in relationships. And I find it interesting, and I've seen this in every church that I've been a part of, sometimes the best inviters, sometimes the most active evangelists are the newest people to the church. They're the people that just come one week and they go, like, I, I found something. I found a church where I, I felt at home. I found something that is unique. I've been in other environments and that wasn't the case. And, and they go and they tell everybody. They tell their workers. They tell coworkers. They tell family members. They tell neighbors. They say, come and see. I've got, I found something at, at Linwood Wesleyan Church. 
you should come too. This might just, this might just be the church that, that you would feel comfortable at, that you would enjoy being a part of, that you would come to see Jesus. Because remember, there's, there's no one Jesus didn't come to save. There's no one Jesus didn't come to save. The other section that I wanted to look at is, is verses 39 through 42. And this is kind of the, the epilogue of this story. Uh, but it carries some important things because we see in verses 39 through 42. I'll read those again because it's been a little while. Uh, he says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Savior of the world. Not just the savior of the Jews. The savior of the world. You see, there's a progression that takes place here. There's a progression that takes place with her salvation, which led to her testimony, which then led to them hearing his words. Many people coming to hear. And so when they say, we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man is the savior of the world, I don't hear them saying, you know, he didn't tell you everything you ever did. He just told you a few things. Why did you lie to us? That's not what they said. They said, at first we believed because of what you'd said. Now we believe because we've heard. And let me tell you, that is a really good conversation to be on the other end of. There's something very fulfilling about somebody coming to, me, to you and saying, at first I was curious, at first I was interested, at first I was even convinced because of what you had said, because of your testimony, but now I've heard. Now I know Jesus personally. And now I believe for myself. Not on the coattails of your faith, but in my own faith. It's a conversation that you as parents want to have with your children that they would come back maybe at Christmas or their freshman year of college and say, you know, I started out believing because you believe, but now I've seen, now I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and I believe. And that's the whole focus of our youth ministry. Everything we're doing at LSM is, is to prepare our students to own their faith, to not just ride the coattails of their parents' faith, but to own their faith and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that they are then able to share with the world around them. And when they identify him as the savior of the world, I think that's unique and I think it's significant. Because when she's confronted with her sin and, and Jesus says, you know, go get your husband. And she said, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you're right. And he, he kind of chronicles where her life is at right now. You notice how she tried to change the subject in verse 20? She says, well, I see that you're a prophet. So let me ask you this question about where we worship so that we can get the subject, you know, transferred from me and my sin to some you know, and it happens to be worship, happens to be worship wars. I get this all the time in churches. I had to smile at that. But we see that she thought that would be enough to get Jesus to leave her alone. And yet he says, I know everything about you, and I'm here to talk to you, and I have living water for you if you're interested. And she is interested. And she goes and tells, and they come out, maybe thinking, well, yeah, but he's not going to have anything to do with a whole crowd of Samaritans, right? If he's a good, devout Jew, he's going to take off for the hills. No, he stays. He stays for two whole days in Samaria, in the last place on earth that most Jewish people would want to be. And he stays, and he teaches, and he explains to them. And he probably ran through the Sermon on the Mount with them and, and taught them so that they would understand. And their conclusion is... This is the savior of the whole world. This is not just the Messiah of the Jewish kingdom that's going to throw off Roman oppression. This is the savior of the world. This guy is thinking way bigger 
than just a political overthrow. This guy is saving everyone for all time. Not just the Jews. He's the savior of the world. He's not just the savior of the Wesleyans. He's the savior of the whole world. He's not just the savior of the people who look and act like we do. He's the savior of the whole world. He's not just the savior of the people who have it all together, right? He's the savior of the people that don't have anything together. He's not just the savior of the oppressed. He's the savior of the whole world. And that's our focus today, that Jesus is the savior of the whole world. There is no one Jesus didn't come to save. And no, it doesn't matter where you go, whether you go out and go across the street or whether you get on a plane in the airport and you fly around the country, you will never, ever, even if you go to foreign countries and foreign places in this world, you will never, ever, ever look into the eyes of somebody that Jesus didn't die to save. It's impossible. He came for the whole world. He was sent by God to be the savior of the world. And he sends us to be ambassadors for Christ wherever we are, wherever that may be, in our own Jerusalem, in our own Judea, in our own Samaria, in our own utter ends of the earth. He came for us and he sends us. And so I want to leave you with a challenging statement from a famous, famous preacher. You think megachurches are a recent thing. They're not. They've become a big thing in America in the last 10 or 15 years, and there are churches with 20 or 30,000 people that call that their church home. There's a few multi-site churches across the country that have 50 or 60 or 70,000 people that call that their church home. There was a megachurch in, in London, England in the 18th, 19th century, and the pastor was Charles Spurgeon, and he would preach to thousands at a time. Six, seven, eight thousand, multiple services of six or seven or eight thousand. And when he went somewhere, people showed up to hear him preach the word of God. And he said one time, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You're either a missionary or an imposter. You either come to see Jesus, the man who knows everything about you and still invites you and still reaches out to you and still invites you to take the living water that he came for you to have. And you respond in that by becoming a missionary, joining his redemptive mission in the world, being a missionary for Jesus wherever you are. He's not saying everybody, every Christian either becomes a foreign missionary and sells all their stuff and gets on a plane and goes and lives in some place with a different language. That's not, that's too small a view of missionary. He's saying every person joins the redemptive mission of God, every true believer, or they're an imposter. And that should challenge us. I know it challenges me. And this isn't the first time that I've been challenged by it. So I want to ask you a few questions. One of my uh, job descriptions here is to meddle. It's just right there, you know. It's like meddle on occasion. So I'm going to meddle a little bit. And I want to remind you before I do that Satan deals in condemnation. The Holy Spirit of God deals in conviction. Condemnation says, you low down dirty rat. See, I told you, you were no good. That's what Satan says. The Holy Spirit says, you're better than that. You can do better. You can do more. You can share. I'm going to put somebody in your mind, and I want you to pray for them, and I want you to share your faith with them, okay? So keep in mind, we don't do condemnation here. Now, the Spirit may convict, and sometimes conviction feels a little uncomfortable. But if it moves us towards God and towards his will for our lives, then conviction is one of the very best things that we can experience. So I want to know, 
Who has come to see Jesus recently? We'll call recently the last 90 days because of your testimony. Who has come to see Jesus in the last 90 days because of your testimony? You don't have to tell me. You don't have to. You might pray about this. You might think about this. You might reflect on this. Another question. When was the last time you shared your faith with a non-believer? When was the last time you shared your faith with a non-believer? Jesus said the fields are ripe for the harvest. And the hard work has already been done. The hard work has already been done. That, That whole dying for the sins of the world, that hard work has been done. Jesus is just looking for some people to carry the good news to the world around them, carry the good news to the people who don't know about it or who don't understand it, who think they've seen Jesus and have rejected him, but they haven't seen the real Jesus. They haven't haven't heard about him through your eyes. They haven't understood him the way you understand him, and they won't if you don't tell your story. Lastly, when was the last time that you invited someone to come and see Jesus? When was the last time you invited somebody to come to Linwood Church. And I would encourage you to do so. I get, I get a lot of good feedback about the things that are happening here. I get good feedback about the messages. I get good feedback about the ministries. I get good feedback about the worship. Most people that I talk to feel pretty good about what's happening at Linwood Wesleyan Church. So go tell other people. Don't just tell me. I mean, I like it. Don't get me wrong. I would much rather hear that than hear everything you think is wrong. But if it's good, then go tell somebody that's not here. And let's invite. And let's invest in relationships. And let's tell people what we've seen and heard. Let's tell people what God has done in our lives. Let's tell people what we have come to know and believe. And why we love Jesus the way that we do. Because there's no one Jesus didn't come to save. And so we have an opportunity now at the end of the service here to respond. We talk, call this the response time. We sing a response song during response time. And our hope and our prayer and the reason that we do all this and put all this stuff together. And we sing songs and we practice and rehearse and we have ministries and we have volunteers and we work on a sermon and deliver that sermon is the hope that you will respond in faith to the word that you hear from God. That you'll respond in faith to the encounter and the experience that you've had with God. And so that's our prayer again today. And I want to challenge you, if God's put somebody on your mind, somebody on your heart, would you come forward to an altar and pray for them? And pray for God to give you the courage and the opportunity to share what you've seen and heard with them? We've got these beautiful altar benches. The middle ones we kind of leave reserved for people that just want to pray and be kind of alone in your prayers. I would encourage you to come forward. You can kneel in front of them. You can sit on them. You can kneel along the front. I keep waiting for that day when the altars are full and somebody has to kneel on the steps or, or, or sit on the steps. That's all, that's all fine. If you want somebody to pray with you, we have pastors, we have prayer partners, we have uh, board members, we have people that will pray with you at the outside benches. If you have somebody you want to intercede on their behalf, you have a need that you're going through, you can go to those outside ones and somebody will pray with you. But I hope that every single person, whether you come to an altar or not, that you will respond in faith and that you will pray a dangerous prayer that says, God, put somebody in my mind and on my heart and don't let it go away until I tell them about the love that I have for you because you are the savior of the whole world. And there's somebody that you know that needs to know what you know. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful that you came to save the whole world, including us. We are so grateful that you have 
offered us that living water, that it will spring up within us, and that we will never thirst again if we stay tethered to you. Lord, I pray that we would join hands with you in your redemptive mission and that we would tell people what we've seen and heard, that we would introduce somebody to the Savior of the world, that we would respond in faith to your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.